Hi, I'm Steve Thomas. This is Cacophony. Let's dive into some great music. But first, a warning. This episode's music comes from out of the depths of the abyss. Diana Ambash is a pianist, writer and artistic director who's done great things to promote music written by women composers, even to the extent of setting up her own group to play and record music which was being ignored by the rest of the music industry. Diana joined me down the line, as they say, to talk about Lily Boulanger, the first female winner of France's most prestigious prize for composers over a hundred years ago. Boulanger died aged only 24, leaving some great pieces like her setting of the Bible's Psalm 130, which we're going to talk about and listen to. It's a big and heartfelt piece, which demonstrates her huge talent and unique voice, and leaves us wondering what she might have achieved had she lived longer. First, I asked Diana about how she got into music in the first place, and what music means to her. It was actually my dad, without even knowing, because he used to play chamber music with his friends at the weekend. And I, just without thinking, understood music is lovely because of the way it brings people together. So it's all about the connection? Yes, it's a lovely way to be with people. And words have not always been my mode. So um, sounds was a very good idea. Yeah, great. For a lot of your career, you've been at the, the forefront of this movement, if that's the right word, to get us all listening to more music by female composers? I stumbled upon the fact that there was a piano concerto by Germaine Taillefer from a book about French music. And I thought, hold on, why have I never learnt anything, heard of music by women? And so I went exploring and we did the UK premiere. People thought it was a little bit weird, but there we are. I mean, I didn't mind. And what's been interesting, the last 35 years, the picture has really changed. The BBC, Radio 3, has a lot more pieces by women than it ever did before. That That's real progress. A lot of the big festivals will now include music by women. Yeah. And there are a lot more recordings. There's loads of stuff on YouTube and Spotify. So it really has moved forwards. We're going to be talking about Lily Boulanger today. Many of the female composers were sort of thwarted by the men in their lives, you know, their their husbands or fathers or people working in the business. You know, more of a reflection of society as a whole perhaps than the music business per se. But Boulanger was distorted by illness and death before anybody else got a chance. Well, that's right. Actually, she had an extremely successful musical father who won the Prix de Rome about 80 years before she did. So that was great. She also had the wonderful sister, Nadia Boulanger, who supported her in her composing. I mean, I think her family actually was a great help to her. And as you say, the biggest problem was being ill from the age of two, seriously ill, and um, a fragile person and a woman in France. When What was so interesting, when Lily won the Prix de Rome in 1913, there were two very opposite reactions. One was that the jury voted absolutely 
for her. So the, the, the vote was something like 31 to 5. Crumbs. And I bet they were all men. They were really for her. The press were very shocked and there was quite a lot of misogyny in the reaction. But, I mean, she won it. So she changed the scene just simply by age 19 winning this big prize. So the Prix de Rome is this kind of rite of passage for French artists, right? Competition that's won by almost all of the famous French composers that we've heard of and very many more that we haven't heard of. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's right. It's not an immediate, um, as you say, passage to fame. And if you got first prize, you stood a chance of being recognised. But there were a few women who got second or third prize and nobody knows their names at all. So... You know, good for her. Actually, she tried the previous year, but she fell ill and was not able to see it through. But 1913, there was this wonderful result. And obviously, it's a precedent. It meant any woman after that, any French woman particularly, could always say, well, look, there's the role model. Yeah, yeah. And you say her dad won the prize 80 years before. Yeah, something like 1835. So he must have been, how do we put it politely, ancient when he became her father. He was 70 when she was born and she was seven when he died. Goodness. So here's another challenge for her. And I think that early on in her very short life, that meant she wrote a lot of music about grief and loss. But we can't really disentangle all the threads of this warp and weft because, of course, the Impressionists were there. She was at the Conservatoire under Foray and Debussy and Ravel, I think, thought rather highly of her. They They were very much in the artistic circles of Parisian life at the beginning of the 20th century. So she was well placed. That was a bit of good news. So health-wise, she had pneumonia as a toddler and then tuberculosis for most of her life, is that right? Something called Crohn's disease and what she died of was intestinal tuberculosis. And when you see pictures of her, she looks very frail. Some people, some academics think she used her feminine fragility. I don't know about that. If there's misogyny going on, then feminine fragility wouldn't do it. Yes. So again, I come back to her sort of strength of purpose and commitment to music, really. And I think they were quite a strongly Catholic family. So she wrote several pieces of music. There are about three psalms, including the one that we're going to talk about, Psalm 130. And here we have this very fragile girl of 22, writing for an orchestra of probably 70 musicians and a big choir behind of probably another 70 people. Mm. I mean, it's incredible. I read something, they drew a very marked comparison between this delicate French wallflower almost versus the suffragettes, who were obviously as busy in France as they were in the UK around that time. And it said, you know, the suffragettes are smashing windows and and this French young lady is doing it a much more appropriate way. Yes, 
You're slightly, by implication, making a comparison with Ethel Smythe. Yes, I suppose I am. Who might have put um, a brick through an MP's window and who fought also very hard to be allowed by her family to go and study in Leipzig. But, I mean, the caricature that is usually used to represent Smythe shows her as a very sturdy, tweedy lady, as you're kind of implying, completely different type from Boulanger. But they both, as you say, write very powerful music because there's this, well, lie, let's face it, that says that female composers at the time could only write small-scale stuff and chamber music. Well, that's the cliché, isn't it? And again, she simply wasn't bothered about convention. And so many of her pieces are for huge numbers of musicians. And I keep thinking, I mean, I'm not a composer, but to have the control over that sound world with that number of people inputting to the whole picture, that's a staggering achievement. Let's talk about Psalm 130 then, which is one of the pieces that she wrote towards the end of her life, although it took her a long time to write. She spent a lot of time on this, and it's huge. It's 25 minutes. As you say, it's chorus. It's a massive orchestra. It's got two harps in it, Celeste organ. I never know how to describe Celeste. Bell-like instrument played with a piano keyboard. Is that how you describe it? Yes, it is. And I think it's the whole orchestra. It's the very size of the of the yeah. group and the subtlety with which she can use those huge forces that I find particularly impressive. And I think the text are not very hot on the Psalms, but it seemed yeah. to me it's kind of supplicatory and she's calling to God. And I think all of that just has to show how strong her Catholic faith was. So Psalm 130 is out of the depths of the abyss, I cry to you, O Lord. It's gloomy stuff. So we're deep in the pit of despair and we're asking for God to send help. There are sort of like three or four sections. There's asking for help, saying that everybody's so deeply ridden with sin that if God was keeping score, <laughs> we'd all be out on our ear in seconds. But there's a little bit of gratitude that he or she isn't keeping score. And then it's a, a plea for God to come. So that's the plot, <laughs> yes. if you like. Yeah. Are there any moments in particular that are worth sort of pinpointing? I tend to particularly respond to the kind of inner moments. the lovely bit with the high voices, very ethereal.
although she uses these huge forces, she doesn't spend a lot of time. Very loud, forte. It's because it's yes. so so subtle in its writing. I haven't picked out the grand climaxes. No, interesting. I, for me, a couple of the things that really strike me about this piece is the simplicity of the solo line. So there's this big chorus fear and trembling business, as you say, not always at, at full pelt. But then the soloist comes in. It's very simple, very sort of unadorned. You know, there's no fancy singery business going on. I felt it was very sincere. The alto was, in a way, the personal version of what the whole chorus was saying. Yes, I agree. There's a moment after she's first come in, there's another climax. The orchestra is sort of almost, if you like, anticipating the next verse, which is about um, waiting for God to come to their rescue and to come to their aid. And there's harp and organ falling figures. And it's joined by the Celeste doing it at half the speed. It really kind of caught my ear because normally when you hear Celeste, you you have a torrent of this kind of tinkly bells. But this is just going ding, dong, 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 ding, dong, dong, providing a, a slower ripple that conjures up this kind of watery feeling. It's very beautiful. I'm struck by the fact that at the end, she's, and the psalmist, is calling for help. And there's a big climax on the word, on hope, and putting your hope in God, the final climax. But after that, you're still in the abyss. There is no answer. Well, from out of the abyss, and indeed, the whole piece starts very dark and down in the abyss. Do you mean that she is still in the abyss at the end i think i think still in the abyss but with a glimmer of hope but perhaps not certainty yes what do you think okay some people say you know you remarked it took a long time to compose which had a lot of other reasons behind it like during the war and all of that but some people make interpretations well, perhaps she was expressing the difficulties of the war. I don't know. I can't make that interpretation. And we all bring our own understanding to what we hear. Yes, that's the nature of music, right? Uh, we're back to sounds are better than words. Actually, we're back to Mendelssohn. Mendelssohn didn't like words because he thought they were too easy to misunderstand. Whereas music, you couldn't misunderstand. I like that. Interesting that that comes up in a piece that has words in it that still leave us with ambiguity. What I'm saying is that was Mendelssohn's view of words and sounds. And we are all coming up with our own knowledge, ignorance, attitudes, hearing. So is Boulanger doing anything in this piece that's, that's sort of unique to her? I think... We're back to the whole issue of whether women are independently creative, original or 
we've mentioned there are connections with Impressionism, Debussy. And, and those labels... But we'd do that for any composer, right? Because the way that yes. you put somebody in context whose music you don't know is to relate them to other composers. That's right. But if you use the label within a, a kind of defining, restricting way, then it, it doesn't allow for individuality. And the point about Lily is that she found her own voice. It's not just Impressionism a la Debussy. So when you say, did she do anything original? I'm not going to give you a technical answer. I give you that as a personal answer. That anybody can find their own language, whether it's words or music, but be true to themselves. That's original. And that's interesting. I think we've come round again to the fact that she died at age 24 and, and everybody just goes, oh, my goodness, you know, what we have lost. Well, yes, what we have lost. But we don't know what she would have done, so we can't conjecture. And what Nadia lost and then stopped composing and then moved to teaching, I mean, that's, that's the most extraordinary result out of a death, isn't it? Yeah. Nadia, her sister, she's six years older. She goes on to teach rather than compose. Mm. And she lives a very long life. Yes. And teaches a huge number of influential composers from Copeland and Glass to Quincy Jones. Probably it would be fair to call her the most influential teacher of the 20th century. And she's also a conductor and she keeps the flame alive of her sister's work long enough for other people to pick it up. So I think we should have a listen now to Psalm 130. Click on the link in the show notes to listen to the music. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks ever so much for coming on, Diana. I hope everyone enjoys the music. It's fascinating stuff. That's lovely. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. I'd love to hear your thoughts on Boulanger's music and anything else that comes to mind listening to Cacophony. So once you've listened to the music, please let me know what you think with a comment at cacophonyonline.com or via Facebook or Twitter. If you'd like to support Cacophony with cash, you can, but the best support you can offer is to comment and to share this episode or the trailer with anyone and everyone you know. There are links in the notes. Please come back for more next time. Thanks for listening.